Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. My guest today is Taya Ergeta. She is currently a business consultant and social entrepreneur, but she is also an experienced life science executive. She has been the Division General Manager at Agilent Technologies for Liquid Chromatography and Mass Spectrometry. I had the pleasure of working on her team at Varian, where she was the Vice President of Marketing, and we overlapped very briefly at Thermo Scientific, where she was the Vice President of Strategic Marketing for Scientific Instruments. She is also currently an Executive Mentor at the Global Social Benefit Institute, and today we're going to talk about leading with Marcom. And welcome, Taia. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. All right. You and I recently had a discussion, and I thought a lot of what we talked about would be worth sharing to a broader audience. And I wanted to start with um, the idea that when we worked together at Varian, you introduced this idea of changing an organization through marketing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I'd probably even be a little bit more radical and assert that you can actually change a whole organization dramatically and make it more successful through marketing communications. And the key principle behind that, as I, I played it out in a couple of different positions that I had both in my previous world of tech as well as in life sciences, is that you always are more efficient and more effective at something if you start with your desired endpoint and work backwards from that, as opposed to kind of starting off and kind of generally doing things that you think are going to be helpful to getting to that endpoint. So, so yeah, I should probably be a little more specific. So, you know, every company's desired endpoint is really for customers to buy their their products. But what I found was that instead of focusing on that customer and their desired buying process and their, their, even their, their emotional and psychological makeup, most companies start at the other end, right? Um, start with a technology or a product idea and they develop the product, they develop the selling process and eventually they get around to messages and, and uh, marketing materials. But Using that approach of going from that side toward the endpoint usually ends up producing underperformance. Um, and at at best, if if the customer, if the product actually does meet the customer need, you um, you actually waste time and you waste some resources because you're doing things in a way that makes sense to you, but then the customer has to contort to figure that out and to align themselves and their way of thinking and their needs to what you're talking about and producing. Now, that's kind of in the best case. In the worst case, though, what I've seen is that you actually fail because you developed a product that doesn't actually meet their needs and there's no amount of great selling or marketing communication that can fix that, right? Right. So can you give an example of the kind of things a marketing communications team might do or an entire marketing team might think about in order to um, begin at the end point? What kinds of things? Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. Some of those things have started to be brought into the product development cycle, right? And some people would say that, you know, by doing design thinking and by doing customer-focused product development, you, you, can, you can address these issues. And I think that's partially true. That's part of what needs to be done. But I think what I, I found certainly was that as I looked at, you know, and managed various different kinds of teams, if you, you know, try to start from that development side out, you don't really get there. And it's because marketing and Marcom need to bring a different kind of a mindset and a different set of skills it, to, 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 to really make that work. So, um, you know, they're the ones who can really work to understand the customers and understand uh, things like, you know, things beyond their hard needs, uh, like their, their emotions, um, the language that they use, um, you know, how they think, what their, what their real issues are as people as opposed to, you know, as, uh, as users of technology or products. And they can bring that into the organization and by actually getting that specific about you know, what you have to say and how you have to say it and when you have to say it to customers, you can actually then, you know, by, by meeting those needs, by setting up those requirements internal, internally and leading the rest of the organization to meet those requirements, you actually bring about a whole range of new types of thinking and awareness that not only make that particular project more successful, but what I found is it was the one thing that actually made the aha experiences happen for, for example, the R&D teams. So that they not only did a better job in that project, but they did a better job even in the later projects. Interesting. And what you talked about there about those emotional needs and being really specific about the type of person that you're looking to buy your product. Um, anybody who's done any reading on content marketing knows we're essentially talking about a persona here, which is different than a segment, which you would say here is a group of people who work in an industry. Now we're talking about an, a persona, which might exist across industries, but at, uh, there might be different personas within a single industry. So uh, there's the person who uses the product. There's a person who may be the technical expert on the product. And there might be someone who just makes purchasing decisions and they all have needs to be met, right? Exactly. And sometimes it's even people outside of the customer. I'll give you an example. When I was in the computing uh, arena, we uh, we were way behind in mobile computing in Hewlett Packard, and so the first thing that I did was hire a very aggressive. As we were doing a, a major turnaround of that business, first thing I did was to hire a very aggressive Marcom person, and I asked her to get us in and to set up meetings with the people who were really quite influential at that particular time, and those were the industry experts. So there were, you know, certain groups of market research organizations and press people who were particularly influential there. 
And we had some very rough meetings where they were very uncomplimentary about our company and its status in the market. But through those meetings, we really learned what their criteria were going to be for writing about us in a positive way and even writing us about us at all. So in short order, we had a checklist of very specific things that we had to be able to say. I could go back and then organize my team and my work with my colleagues to make sure we did the things that would enable us to say those things. And I can tell you that within just a few months, we were all of a sudden being written up in all of the major articles and being um, touted as a company that was serious and was making a big push in this marketplace. Well, that takes content marketing to a different level. A lot of companies now are thinking about producing media for their company, but now we're thinking about how you get uh, journalists to recognize what you're doing and talk about you the way you want them to. Right. And this is the whole thing, is getting specific enough, whether it's people outside of the company or with customers, and saying, you know, I, I literally do uh, oftentimes personally and in my consulting and when I advise groups, is to say, what would these people need to hear? You know, what are, what are the actual kinds of words that they need to hear in order to believe or in order to go away with a particular impression? And that's really, really helpful. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. So another thing we talked about um, with respect to leading with Marcom is um, in what ways do you see marketing communications influencing product development? I guess we talked a little bit about that just now. Um, and in fact, I think maybe we just covered that. Well, you know, I think it, it really comes down to two things, though. Maybe, you know, you're right to just summarize them is, you know, the first one is that you can reveal very critical gaps in the assumptions of the organization and per particularly of the product development team. I remember one time I was working with a team that was wanting to enter a market segment that was adjacent to one where they were very, very strong. And everybody was convinced that the company's product and their current strength would really be a big asset in the new segment. So the plan was to call on about five of the major companies in the new segment and, you know, really get going. As we started to just simply craft a presentation for those meetings, it became really clear that nobody in the organization knew some core information about the processes and the priorities of that, that new segment. And as a result, you know, there was no way to articulate a compelling value proposition to that group. And it, that was a great thing to really understand, right? Because otherwise the organization would have gone through, you know, could have actually invested a lot in marketing what they thought were assets to an organization where they didn't really understand the fit. And so that changed it. And we changed those meetings to being, you know, in part sharing assets, but in part really being fact-finding meetings that allowed the organization to really tune its activities going forward. So, I think you know that's that's one way that um, that it can help. I think the other one that we've touched on is to just make sure that it's not all about what the what those factual or um, operational needs are, and that someone's taking into account the things that our friend Hamid Ganadan always talks about, which are the the emotion and ego factors as well. Right. Yep. Can we talk a little bit about 
the possibility of managing marketing communications in the same way we would manage product development. Sure. Yes. I you know I I think uh, depending on how companies manage, but I think most companies have a pretty structured process for managing product development. And then when it comes to Marcom, and I should go back, they, they manage product development through stages, right? And those stages are, are pretty similar, and, and I've been in organizations where it was very, very detailed, very, very clear exactly what had to happen in each of those stages. In other organizations, it may not be quite as structured, but generally people know what has to happen in each of those stages. And then when you get to Marcom, oftentimes there isn't really that. What you have is projects, right? And so, or, or worse, tasks, right? So mini projects. And so, uh, but there's, there's really no reason to, to run things that way. It, you really can get all the same benefits as you have in product development in uh, Marcom and, and marketing by managing it as a process, that tends to have all of these different stages. And in fact, by doing so, Marcom can actually create a lot of strength and uh, leadership for itself, right? <laughs> Any group that actually has a process can in fact then get the organization to buy into that and it keeps them from being in the position of asking for one-off pieces of information or meetings or insights from the team in order to do their project. All of a sudden, if it's an established process that is parallel with the product development process, it has legitimacy. And in fact, you can actually, in many cases, kind of fold in things into the, into the product development process. One of my favorite ones is the idea of incorporating into the product development process a, a version of the press release for the product early on, right? I don't know if you've seen that done, Chris. I don't know that we did that at, at very We certainly <laughs> talked about it, yes. Okay. But, you know, if you actually could build that into the checkpoint process of, of the development process, that would be great, right? That really focuses everybody's mind on do we have a clear objective with respect to the project and how is it changing as we're needing to make product development decisions. Right. I, I love this idea and I think there's a huge opportunity for marketing communications teams to save lots of effort by doing exactly what we just talked about rather than being the victim of random task requests to build a plan to say this is these are all the things we're going to do and of course there are added things when a product launch comes around but underneath that a a process to say here is a uh, a schedule a roadmap for all the content we're going to produce over the long haul that is kind of our core structure and certainly there are things that have to happen on top of that but when you can do that, um, I've been trying to communicate this to people that um, you make yourself less vulnerable to those random requests. If you don't have something that people are happy to look at and say, yep, I feel like we're going the right direction, they're just going to ask you for the latest thing that's bugging them. Exactly. And also, you know, you're going to be able to have 
input, right? You know, people always react much, much better and give much better input when they have something to look at. If not, oftentimes you're waiting, 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 and all of a sudden uh, a, a product development team will, in a hurry, develop what they think they want from Marcom at the very last minute, which may or may not be the best considered set of activities. Right. Well, I think you've answered my next question is um, around marketing communications frequently ending up at the end of the entire launch process with <laughs> trying to gather that information that's needed, for example, for a launch and um, nothing done in front of that and they become the victim of lack of planning or whatever and you, I think, have just clearly described ways that we can avoid that situation because no Marcom will always be at the end of the process. There's no escaping that. Right, right. You know, and just getting, starting to get some principles developed earlier. And um, I think we can talk more about this, uh, perhaps you know, whenever you'd like here, uh, which is about. Uh, those kind of background processes around customer understanding and that kind of thing that Marcom can set up that enable you to actually do some things ahead even before you know what the actual deliverables are. Well, let's let's go ahead and talk about that because my next question was about um, having had the experience where even near the launch, the messaging is not yet decided for even well-differentiated products. And my feeling was we could have put something down on paper six months ago, but now we're still going back and forth about what we really want to say. So if you have um, some examples, that would be appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, yes, well, um, I, I, I do like the idea of Marcom having a place in those development checkpoint meetings. So then comes the question of, well, what, what, do those, what, what would you actually say, whether it's in those checkpoint meetings or in a Marcom process that runs parallel with the, with the product development? You know, what you might have are things like Marcom showing what the messaging is from the competitors at that time you know, doing their own summary of what that messaging looks like and consequently either asking questions or starting to propose ideas about what differentiated mes messaging might look like. Um, so, you know, putting up those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of contextual, either market or customer-based information early so that people can uh, can can have discussions around those, give feedback, and give you a, a, an ability to start early, even though you don't have all the product details. Um, another one would be to work with sales. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. I I found as I all all of my positions have been worldwide, and one of the things that was consistent was that as I traveled around, particularly worldwide. You know, I was just shocked oftentimes at how often the sales force gets marketing materials or messages that they simply do not use. And it's because they're selling in a different way than is anticipated by the marketing and Marcom teams, or in many cases, it's because they think their customers are different. 
um, or in fact their customers are different and therefore those materials or messages aren't appropriate. So I think that's another way to get ahead of things is to, to work with the sales force on an ongoing basis to have a proactive process for understanding those local customer segment characteristics or local selling approaches. And, you know, in some cases, maybe it's, it's about aligning the, the marketing communications to that better. In some cases, it may be that the selling team, the local selling team is not selling in the way that the strategy actually, um, the company strategy now wants them to sell. And that's also good to know. Um, but I think that's a that's another one of those background strategies that can be that can be led by Marcom and marketing that is is very very helpful. And then um, sometimes it's hard to get ahead of things because there's there's product uncertainty or because of confidentiality issues. So people don't want you talking to Salesforce or customers about the product ahead of time. But you know, hopefully new product teams in that situation should have at least a few customers that they've chosen for confidential early access. And those, those customers are oftentimes used for product development decisions. And I would really suggest that they really be heavily used by Marcom and marketing as well for, for inputs. Right. So there are a number of resources available to a marketing communications team well in advance of a launch to get input and start start those processes early, whether it's talking to customers, looking at competitors, talking to the sales team, et cetera. Right. And, you know, it, it does create an issue, right? Because if your work has traditionally been organized to happen at the end of these products, and now we're creating a process that actually spans more time than that, it may be a challenge for a marketing and Marcom team to to work this way, but I'm convinced that actually you can be more productive even though it seems like you're involved in each product for longer. Right, because I think one of the things I'm trying to get clients and everybody to think about is um, doing the right things and, and again, avoiding those random requests for the thing that we think is going to help right now is taking that big picture view and avoid doing all those uh, tasks that take up a lot of time or require lots of review back and forth at the last minute. I, I think there's a lot of friction that goes on because of lack of planning. Right. The urgent crowds out the important. Right. Shifting gears a little bit, you told me at one point that companies in our industry see themselves as a series of product launches. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, this is a real source of loss of value in, in the industry, in, in my opinion, because managers that think that way are going to allocate resources generally incorrectly and marketing resources in particular will be will be allocated inappropriately. So let me give you an example. So it, I, I was working with a company that was operating that way, you know, and they use the entire Marcom budget and the marketing teams on introductions. And as a result, they put off adopting what we would call modern marketing automation and even up-to-date kind of web marketing activities and, and tools. 
Now, that is a, is a big strategic mistake, right? Since it means that relative to their competitors who are actually investing in those things, their costs of, of contacting customers and, you know, get, and, and getting, getting um, their messages across were really going up. And their effectiveness was probably going down because they weren't being able to, to get the benefits of those kinds of tools. So that's, you know, that's at least one, one way in which that can really get you. Now, um, in another case, I saw a different kind of a, a trade-off. Um, I was doing customer interviews for, for a client. And I was shocked because over and over in a particular segment that had fairly complicated applications, customers were telling me that their primary purchase decision criterion was the fact that their current vendor knows them very, very well. That the vendor knows their applications and even knows their company and kind of history and you know how they purchase things. And so even though some other customer other companies had better pricing in many cases and comparable products, they were sticking with their vendor because of that. Now in that case, you know, if you were focusing a lot on product introductions, and spending your money on that versus spending it on continued development of those customer relationships and that industry knowledge, you'd be making a, a major mistake. Right? That's that's a very different that's a very different place where you would be putting your money. Right. It's an expensive thing to put all your money into product launch materials and the the big bang items as opposed to a steady whatever, however you choose to maintain those relationships and understand your customers and keep them up to date on applications or, or whatever, right? Right, right. And then the other part is that inherently a product launch is about you. It's about your company, you know, your product, this is the time. And if that launch happens to coincide perfectly with when a customer is interested in buying and has the money to buy, then you win big, right? Because right when they need the information, you're there and you're firing on all cylinders with all of that. But as you know, most of the time that's not the case, right? Customers are buying at various times. And so you're actually spending a lot of money at a time when it's going to have diminishing returns. You know, you're, the, the chances of them remembering this and, and going back to that particular piece of information is pretty low when they need it. So, so you're actually sub-optimizing your investment if you do that versus some um, additional on-demand or really great on-demand information availability or maybe even content marketing really allows you to stay relevant with customers and hit them with information and reminders of you all the time and be there when they're ready to buy. Exactly. So in the first scenario you gave, you are firing a big cannon and a very small target. <laughs> very well put. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So it looks spectacular, but it may not get you what you wanted. Right. Um, so you mentioned content marketing there. And, of course, I'm a big fan of content marketing. I know you are. When, but content marketing probably can't do everything. So how, can you talk about 
how content marketing works alongside traditional marketing. What's a smart way to do it? Um, and, and what are the benefits of adding content marketing to your mix? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, um, there are limitations obviously to, to content marketing, you know, for example, it obviously can't be promotional, right? Or you lose that, but, but obviously you can get great relevance and credibility and, and visibility that you don't get any other way when you do content marketing. Um, I think one of the, the best things to do, though, is to create the right kinds of ties between the two, between what we would call traditional marketing and, and content marketing. Um, really create bridges so that, yes, you keep your, your content marketing pure, but you have stories, for example, or articles that that maintain that purity, but also have simple links to other industry materials that you have, for example, or the product material that would be relevant to the topic that you're talking about. And of course, you know, ways to contact a salesperson. So, you know, really, really make that uh, a very nice, nice bridge so that they don't have to strain and, uh, and really try to think about how the, they they get the cues that prompt them to think about you as a company that has something that could be of value to them to buy as they're as they're getting the content right so they they're looking at content continually which is obviously or naturally more pleasurable to consume but you're making it easy for them to reach out from the content and initiate a um, an exchange or, or, or a transaction when they're ready. Right, right. Another thing that's a little more subtle maybe, and, um, but it's fun to think about, and this is how content marketing and non-print media in general can help you to kind of reveal and, uh, and, and share a more human side of the company. Because I think, you know, in traditional print, in traditional Marcom, we've had a tendency to stay pretty clinical and pretty dry. And um, I think through either the editorial bylines, you know, of people who actually produce the content and by making that clear and making their, you know, their existence as human beings clear and by the tone, you can really actually get across a, a personality to your company. And you know, that, once again, is a differentiating thing, and it can be a, a, also just a, a stronger relationship-building mechanism. Exactly. I think it's still a huge differentiation opportunity because so many companies seem fearful of doing that, and yet there are people in your company, of course, sales and application engineers who essentially are doing that offline with their customers and the customers know them well. And that's, uh, that's one of the ways customers bond to a company like the one you mentioned previously, where, um, we are sticking with this vendor because they know us so well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And they have the same, they have the same interests. You know, this was another th the interesting thing for me in talking to customers uh, recently, I would ask about content marketing. And a number of people would say, you know, the vendors, yeah, they try, you know, they put out these things and they put out application notes, but, you know, they, they don't 
really have the level of expertise and many times it's kind of close to what we do, but it's not specific enough. And so, so it's not really that relevant. So it was interesting how they would, on the one hand, they would sort of poo-poo some of the value of this. And yet, when you talk to them further, they would talk about for example, their, uh, either their sales rep or their technical person uh, or a technical person at the factory who really understood their area and how much they valued that and how they actually welcomed having discussions with them as opposed to discussions with sales reps who would just come in with the latest product information. So this was kind of, this was really interesting to me to hear because it said, you know, with content marketing, it is difficult to always try to hit the nail. You can't hit the nail on the head with every customer. But it does give them a sense of you know, how much you're interested and knowledgeable about their space and the fact that you have people. And to the extent that they can get that, uh, that sense, either through materials and particularly if it's reinforced with periodically either sort of getting to know virtually or in reality the real people who have that expertise and that interest in their area, it really goes a long way. Thank you. I cannot, I cannot resist now because you mentioned this, um, having those product development people or whomever that have these relationships with customers and the value of those conversations. I published a blog post just this week on the idea that sometimes it's difficult to get content from those people. If you went to someone in R&D and said, hey, could you write us an article about this new technology and explain how it works? That can be a difficult thing for them. And one way to make it much easier is to do what you and I are doing right now, which is to record a conversation because they would love to answer questions about those things. It doesn't take a lot of, how should I say, sitting down and sweating over a page because you want to get everything just right. And um, it can be a very simple way to produce content that has that personality that everyone can appreciate. Oh, I agree. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great way. So, I, you know, I think that's even better than the, you know, much refined and edited content piece. And I do think that, you know, with content, because even with a content strategy, uh, one of the things that I've learned doing some blogging is that it, you really have to push yourself to go get over the idea of it's about writing articles, right? Because, you know, it's about more velocity and even covering the same topic from a slightly different angle later, uh, because time moves on and people are going to be seeing something and they're not going to necessarily be keeping it. If you hit the same topic later, it's okay if you're, if you're adding a little bit, just a slightly different tilt to it. Um, and, you know, I think we just, there's just no way to have that kind of velocity and, uh, and, and make that, that kind of offering to the marketplace with the, the kind of frequency that's required if you overwork things as you were describing in the first process. Right. And I think in our industry, I'm sure it's true in every industry, we overestimate the risk of feeding our customers repetitive content as if they have all seen it 
and they will all remember it if we <laughs> send it again. When the reality is, you know, 10% of them opened that email the first time. If you're really good, 30% of right. them opened it. And among those that opened it, maybe 10% will remember that you sent it two months ago. Correct. Um, so I, I try to get people to think about the, you don't need to make as much as you think. You, you probably already have something you can use again at, and not annoy your customers. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking this time. This was really fun, and um, I really appreciate your your time and, and your thoughtfulness in your answers. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks. It's a great topic. I'm sure we'll have other things to uh, to share about it in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Science Marketing Radio. If you enjoyed it, a rating or review on iTunes is always much appreciated. Or you can leave a comment on the podcast at words, the number two, wow.com. Have a great week, everybody.